That's the retirement plan is Sheridan Cemetery. Okay, so we won't be meeting next week, and I'll probably communicate that in a couple other forms as well. But uh, we'll be back two weeks from tonight. And so tonight we're going to be talking about, last time we talked about, well, what is inspiration? Like exactly what in the world are we talking about when we talk about the Bible being inspired? And there's three, there's three components to this. There's, it's all God's part, but first of all, what does God do? When we talk about the flow of inspiration, God does what? First. Okay, speaks. What do we call God speaking? His, starts with an R. Revelation. Okay, God reveals himself. And then to whom does God reveal himself? Okay, the prophets. Those people are going to be doing the writing. And then when those, when those prophets receive that revelation, then they are what? Inspired. Okay, that's the inspiration. Comes from God. God reveals. The prophet is then inspired. They write their letter to the recipients. Then the recipients need what help from God to understand? To understand and to apply the word of God, we have to be what? Okay, filled with the Holy Spirit. There's a, there's a technical term we learned. Illuminated. Very good, yes. So there's revelation, inspiration, and illumination. So, we talked about what inspiration was last time. Well, tonight we're going to talk about, is there evidence? Like, can we prove, can we know that the Bible is inspired? Now, this is fascinating. I, I, I tell you, going through this again is like I get to see it for the first time. That's what we're, what we're talking about tonight. The proof of the inspiration of the Bible is it's fascinating. I mean, it, it really is. Because, and I, and I meant what I said during the prayer, like, if you have doubts, because we'll say all the time, you know, I started reading the Bible because people I trusted told me, Chad, start reading the Bible. Well, why should I read the Bible? Well, the people I trusted said, well, because it's true. You know, Mom said the Bible is true. So, okay, Mom, I'm going to read the Bible because it's true. Well, when you get older, you start questioning and wondering, well, how do we know, right? Like, so how do we know the Bible's from God? How do we know it's true? Well, there is a ton of evidence, okay? And it's pretty amazing. And we're going to be going through really answering these questions tonight. And if you, and if you think about this, you know, why should an unbeliever believe the Bible is true? I mean, even if you can take it on faith, well, is an unbeliever just going to take, well, no. They're looking, they're looking for some proof. They're looking for some evidence. And I think we're going to find a lot of that. We're going to see a lot of that tonight. So three questions. One, how does the Bible authenticate itself? How does the Bible authenticate itself? How does the Bible reveal that it's true? Then secondly, what evidence is there that the Bible is inspired? Now, that's a big question, that the Bible is inspired by God. And then finally, is there any evidence for the historicity of the Bible outside of Scripture? In other words, other people who were not one of the biblical writers, were they attesting to events that occur in the scriptures? Did we find that? Okay. Yes, sir. A request. Yes.
just take that for you, Les. As you go through these evidences, some of them to, to me seem a little stronger than others. Yeah. Some of them I look at and say, so what? And, and some others of them, of them I say, well, that, I, I'll buy that. Some of it is even, I agree 100%, and some of it is even like circular reasoning. Exactly. So I was, I was going through this, I'm thinking, mm, I, I want to hear him address these issues. Okay, yeah, like some of them are lame sauce. But, we'll, but you'll also see why those are included. You, yeah, just going to leave it up there. Um, so first of all, if I just ask you the question, what makes you believe that the scriptures are inspired? Why, how would you answer that? Okay. So somebody just, it doesn't need to be some academic reason. It doesn't need to be because you've read Pliny the Younger and have determined based upon your own archaeological expedition. But just why do you believe the Bible's inspired? Red ink. Red ink. I mean, come on. <laughs> Who can question the red? It's in red for crying out loud. That means something. Okay, what else? Okay. Historical facts that can be um, verified. Okay. Okay. They can only be verified then by eyewitnesses who were like there. Making statements to them. Good. What else? Okay. Okay. Something about the microphone in your face. Yeah, okay. So life change, right? You've experienced life change. And scripture does that. You know, you read it, you um it speaks to you. Yeah, it speaks to you. Right. It speaks to you, you're born again. Uh and, and how many of you would also say something along those lines? Yeah, okay. Okay, fulfilled prophecy. Good. Man, I think we've just about covered. I may not need to teach tonight, people. You've got this harmony of 66 books over, you know, by a buku of authors over a long span of history. And you've got this harm, they call it, we'll talk about harmony tonight. Good. Yeah, good answers. They wrote the books, they put their names on, and the books aren't very flattering. Yeah. They had their reasons for writing it? You bet. And I, and all these, I think that we can... Um, I, can, I can relate to everything that was said. And even the life change part, you know, that you read the scriptures and there's a power in it. And, and we recognize God's voice in the Bible. Now, the only issue with that part, which I don't disagree with, the only issue with it is, is what? You can't prove it. There's a subjectivity to that. And also people from other religions are going to make the same claim about their holy book. You know, the Muslims are going to say, well, I read the Koran and it changed my life and... And the Mormons are going to say, we read the Book of Mormon and it changed their lives. 
So there are exclusive claims, though, in the Bible that aren't made in any other holy book. It's a personal, yeah, yeah, it's a personal evidence. Yeah, it's, it's the real deal, for sure. Okay, so, um, and part of the question is, well, how would you convince an unbeliever, right? How would you convince an unbeliever that the Bible's true? So we want to be objective, uh, especially in what we're talking about tonight. And it's not to say in a great deal of Christianity is experiential. You know, I shared a few weeks ago that I woke up and I prayed, God, I need some encouragement today. And I mean, I hadn't left the house and someone had texted me and said, Chad, I was just compelled to pray for you today. Meant the world to me. And uh, those things happen. Prayers are answered. So... Let's talk about, then, evidences for the Bible's inspiration. There's seven of these listed, and we'll go through these seven. Self-attestation. I think it's probably one of the weakest ones that Scott was maybe referring to in the beginning. But then the uniqueness, the historicity, the prophetic element. We've hit a lot of these already. The testimony of Christ. That's an interesting one. The life-changing ability, and that's what, that came up too, right? That's what uh, Tawny brought up and... Um, Peggy brought up, and then the testimony of the Holy Spirit. So let's start out with this first one. Well, self-attestation. The scriptures claim inspiration in many places in many different ways. Now that's important because the Bible is making the claim that it's inspired. And what's the problem with that, too? Okay, I can go home and write a, I can go home and write that on a piece of paper. Pretty much. It's inspired. Well, how do you know Pope it's inspired? Because I wrote it. Therefore, it's inspired. Yeah. Um, so it, it's important. It's, it's a needed criteria. The Bible needs to make the claim because the, by making the claim, it's also begging the question. And what's the question that's being begged? Is it true? Is it true that this is itself? You know, it's... Um, but it is a necessary evidence. It invites you to challenge. And there are standing... Okay, well, yes, it so does. Alone, it's not enough. But it's still necessary because it's making the claim. That's why, it's, that's why we're bringing it up. Because the Bible's making the claim. And then you're like, okay, okay, Bible. You say this. Now let's find out, let's find out if it's true. And then secondly, the uniqueness. And this is what um, Penny brought up. I'm going to read this. The Bible is a collection of 66 books made up of different genres, written by more than 40 different authors from all walks of life, fishermen, kings, physicians, shepherds, tax collectors, etc., on three different continents in three languages over 1,500 years, all writing to different circumstances and dealing with different issues. Now, there, there is no other historical document in the world like this one. None. Uh, with this many authors written over this span of time. And these are not scholars, right? They're from all, they're from all walks of life. Uh, it's been translated into more languages than any other document, book, or writing. 
Because of its claim for divine inspiration, its message, and its unparalleled popularity, the Bible has also been attacked more than any other piece of literature. Despite these attacks, the Bible remains the authoritative book for more than two billion professing Christians and the best-selling book of all time. So the Bible almost, you know, instead of thinking of the Bible as a single book, it's even maybe, uh, a, it's better to think of it almost like a newspaper. Because if you read through a newspaper, you've got all these different sections, right? You've got, you've got the editorial page, you've got the obituaries, you've got the headlines, and you've got different journalists writing different things. Now, the big difference, of course, is when you've got a newspaper, the journalists all have different opinions, and they write, uh, they've got different ideas about things. Now, with the Bible, it's not so. You've got this, this fitting together with the different sections. Um, you've got agreement on what's being written down there. And there are tensions in the Bible. We'll, we'll mention there are tensions that come up in the Scriptures. But even the tensions in the Bible, um, and the, the classic one is, well, how is it that uh, man has a responsibility in his salvation and yet he is predestined, right? That's sort of the, the biggest uh, tension that we find in the Scriptures. But just the fact that that is recorded attests to the trueness of it. Because these writers are oftentimes, I think, struggling through, not even necessarily knowing at times what they're writing, only for it to be fulfilled later on. So it is incredibly unique. There's nothing else in the world like the Bible in that sense. That's the uniqueness of it. Then third is the historicity. So there's internal evidence and there's, there's external evidence. In other words, inside the Bible itself, there is evidence of its inspiration. And then outside, you know, archaeology. and Inside we've got uh, fulfilled prophecy. Outside there's also extra-biblical writers that you have. So... So the Bible, yeah, the Bible's built on history. I know whenever Tom Hovestall, he was, he was the uh, interim pastor right before this interim pastor. We're all interim pastors. Um, he used to say, you know, the Bible is, they call it history. It's his story. It is God's story being written out and played out over the course of time. And it's recording, the Bible's recording theological history recording what God does, but it's also recording actual historical events. So Christianity, it's, it's, first, it's a religion, it's a religion of a book that is historical. Does that make sense? Okay, so we'll talk about both the internal and ev external evidence. We'll start out with the internal evidence, um, the honesty, some of these are touched on. Y'all did a really good job. I mean, I, I feel like I'm back in seminary. Some of the questions and comments. This is a well-studied group of people. So let's talk through these four issues of internal evidence. Um, first of all is the honesty of the Bible, okay? Because people really screw up and they record it. So this, is, this might be hard to read up there. You might have to read it in your notes. But uh, you've got the heroes all through the Bible, and the Bible records both successes and failures of the heroes, 
it never paints the glorious picture that you would expect from legendary material, but so shows them in all their worst moments. You know, even think about Hebrews chapter 11. It's like the hall of fame of Bible characters. It mentions Abraham as one of the heroes. But if you go back and look at some of the crazy stuff, you know, Abraham pawned his wife off to a, a pharaoh in Egypt. It's like, he was afraid. So he, I wonder how she felt about that. He's like, yeah, Samson. Um, so, okay. So it never paints a glorious picture. Um, the Israelites whined. David murdered. Peter denied. The apostles abandoned Christ in fear. Moses became angry. Jacob deceived. Noah got drunk. Adam and Eve disobeyed. Paul persecuted. Solomon worshipped idols. Abraham was a bigamist. Lot committed incest. Yeesh. John the Baptist doubted. Abraham doubted. Sarah doubted. Nicodemus doubted. Thomas doubted. Jonah ran. Samson self-served, and John worshipped an angel. You know, imagine John was going to write the book of Revelation, and an angel appeared, and he tries to start worshipping the angel. I mean, ay, 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 come on, man. In addition, the most faithful are seen as suffering the most, Job and Lazarus, while the wicked are seen prospering the rich man. And if you read through the Bible, if you read through the book of Judges, it's like, wow, why is this even, like, why is this even here? And sometimes you get to the end of these books, and it's like, it's not even resolved. It's just, it's just, a, it's like a data dump of bad and stupid things that the Israelites did. And these books were written by their countrymen, Israelites. So why would they record these things? I mean, they're not even like book, again, it's not like the tension is resolved and these aren't bookended by good stories at the ends of some of these really, especially judges. I'm glad I got that book preached. We can move on from there. But, and the writers were committed to their, their country. Now, if you go back and you look at other ancient writings, for example, if you go look at the writings of the Assyrians, they'll record only the battles they won in their history. The king would appoint a historian, and the historian would make that king look good, make Assyria look good, make the battles look good. If he, yeah, he knew better than not to do that. But not so with the scriptures. Yeah, the Israelites from whom Christ is going to come, it, it, it's clear these people screwed up all the time. Why record that? Or why make it, you know, why would you make that up is really the biggest question if it's going to make you look unfavorable. So the Bible just looks different. It's more honest than the other historic documents written at that time. This was, um, I've, I've not read this book by A.W. Pink called Divine Inspiration Scripture. I think it's only about 75 pages. And I've heard it's a really good one to have. I'm, I think I'm going to order it, but there's a quote uh, from that book. A forged history would have clothed friends with every virtue, and would not have ventured to mar the effect designated to be produced by uncovering the vices of its most distinguished personages. Remember, the Israelites were the people God chose. Noah was the guy that God chose. Lot was the righteous one that God chose. 
Here there is displayed the uniqueness of Scripture history. Its characters are painted in the colors of truth and nature. But such characters were never sketched by a human pencil. Moses and the other writers must have written by divine inspiration. And by the way, you know what? Sometimes I struggle with my past. Things I've done and things I've said that Satan will come back and he will, Chad, why you? What right do you have to stand in front of a group of people and preach the word of God? Satan is an accuser. But see, we, so I relish all the messed up people in the Bible. It gives me a wonderful, warm feeling inside to read about how they have jacked their lives up and God still uses them. He still redeems them. So if you ever struggle with your past, go back and read about some of these turkeys. Don't, don't forget about what we're... And it's not just the Old Testament people, it's the New Testament people too. And it's not just after, and it's not just their before Jesus moment, after Jesus is resurrected, Peter still screws up. Um, now this is an interesting one, and uh, you know, some of you may, this, this, is a little, this is a little tough. The Bible also contains irrelevant details that you would not expect from an embellishment of history. Um, so we'll walk through this. Uh, I, I struggle with a few of these, but at the same time, I think the point is clear. So we're going to look at John chapter 20, verses 1 through 8. It's a resurrection story. And there's a number of details included here that don't necessarily seem to be uh, germane or particularly relevant to the point that the author is making, that Jesus is resurrected. Uh, so early on the first day of the week, and the first question is, well, when? You know, does it really matter that it was early on the day? While it was still dark, you know, why is that fact pertinent? Mary Magdalene, which was more of an incriminating detail, you've got these women coming to the tomb whose testimonies weren't necessarily um, valid, uh, went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved, I mean, why did that need to be thrown in there? John's modest way of referring to himself, another mark of genuineness. So, so the reason we're, we're talking about this is it's actually, it attests to the truth of it because these details are included that don't necessarily have a lot of relevance in the story. Okay. I, here, let it out, dude. Let it out. Have you got a microphone? There you go. If you, read the if you read Graves of Wrath, there's an awful lot of details that don't seem to have a lot to do with the story. Okay. I mean, they have lots of description, and, and you go through it, and you read it, and you read it, and you're like, oh, my gosh, why is that in here? But it's in there for a reason, because he's giving descriptions of people, what they're like, their feelings, their motivations, all sorts of things. And that's why that's in there. It's not that they're irrelevant. They're very relevant. But you also think, so the grapes of wrath, so they're rounding out the characters, giving you depth of character. So there's an authorial intent, and it's not history, right? It's, it's fiction for the purpose. It has a purpose, right? It, it, this is a horrible time, and people don't understand how horrible this is. So this guy's going to make sure we understand just how bad the Dust Bowl was and you know, what it was like trying to migrate back, and was that the, the T 
teens, the twenties? What was the era? Was that the the thirties? Okay. And I hear what you're saying, but okay, let's keep going. Because I think there's an important point to make at the end of this. Um they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have taken him. Note her lack of faith here. Uh, notice she's saying they've taken. She's assuming that Christ wasn't resurrected. So Peter and the other disciples started out for the tomb. They were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Like, why was that necessary to put in there? Uh, John's modesty again, but who cares about that detail? He bent over. The tomb entrance was low, a detail which is historically accurate of wealthy people at the time, the kind we know Jesus was buried in, trying to get into the tomb, and look in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Well, why not? Was it necessary to mention that? Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, again, there's a repetition, uh, arrived and went into the tomb. Peter's boldness stands out. You know, he was always the one rushing in. And then it says he saw, I'm sorry, I'm not advancing the slides here, am I? He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. That detail has only become more important, I think, to us recently because of what? The, the shroud of Turin, right? The shroud that they think was they may have found. Who knows? Let me give you the microphone here. Like the uh, first day they came, first day of the week. Well, that talks about the timeline. Okay, how many how many days and nights was that after he died? So that that affixes that for us. And so it does matter. And, you know, the, uh, the stuff about, it tells us about Peter, like you say, he's, he's the bold one, folding the, the napkin over the head, you know. Uh, and he wasn't just, if he was ripped out of there by somebody, that wouldn't have Yeah, yeah. So there's, and you know, yeah, we may not agree on all these. Like some of them seem maybe a little more relevant than others. As, as a matter of fact, there's. It seems, it seems that the intent of all these little details is just to include the details because the person, you know, when John was writing this, it wasn't as though he was writing so much to make particular points as it was he was recording as many details as he could remember while he was writing it. That's kind of the purpose of this portion of it. It would seem to me that the most of the details he re recorded are, are important recording. I mean, he didn't talk about the, the dew on the or the weather that morning or anything like that that, that really would have been superfluous. You know? mm -hmm. But, but if he would recorded it, would we still say it was superfluous? <laughs> you know, it's like if, 
if he had included the details we're reading right now, and we, we, could, we could be making similar comments, too. But yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, and this one's a little, I'm, I'm, present, I'm, I'm arguing it from the perspective of those who included it. I'm, I know what you're saying. As a matter of fact, that even the strips of the linen cloth, uh, there's another commentator that makes a point that you know, there's a character that appears, a young boy that appears early in the Gospel of Mark who lost his linen cloth. It's a weird inclusion that may have some relevance here. So, yeah, I mean, these are, some you may agree or disagree on as far as how relevant they are or not. Some I don't think, so I, I do get what they're saying, though, that if you are fabricating this, although the grapes of wrath point is well taken, you may not include many of the, the seemingly irrelevant details that are here, like the order they arrived, who outran who, So another, okay, so another point to be made from this is people read too far into a lot of these details. Like, and, this, and that's where it gets dangerous because I've heard entire sermons over the most, you know, craziest little detail that they're reading a thousand, you know, a, a ton of symbolism into and, and that's where we can take things too far in taking these details and like, well, it must mean it's a reference to this with really not a lot of evidence that it's, and that could be true. Uh, we had this saying at my last church is when two guys were kind of arguing about a little fine detail, one guy would finally say, okay, you're right. Let's just don't go start a church on that. Okay, let's just don't, yeah. And, I, and, and the, the point here is that these details probably show historicity, uh, that it actually happened. Uh, and these, um, you know, remember, the Bible is written to be heard, right? It was written so that it would be read aloud, as, and whenever these letters were written, they were written to churches, and some of the church would get it. They would read it out loud to the rest of the people in the church. So reading it like it was kind of like a newspaper, you know, like a journalist's account of some of these things that are happening. Okay. All right, good. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going down that path. Uh, so other things recorded in the scripture, um, that man is hopelessly sinful, um, that the primary hero is murdered by man, and that nobody ever understands what is going on in God's plan, which leaves no motive for any proposed embellishment. Only through progressive revelation does the reader understand the full message and that women are the first to witness Christ's resurrection. So, you know, you read a book like, like Jonah. Who is the fool in the book of Jonah? Yeah. And it's like, and, and you know, you can get hung up on the whale. The whale is actually a really minor fact in the book of Jonah. You know, most of the time in the book is spent talking about him not caring about the Ninevites. And this is, Jonah, no, I've got an amp, Mona. Jonah is a representative of Israel and how little they cared about some of the, you know, God chose Israel for the purpose of making himself known among the nations. But they would get selfish with this. They would, uh, they wouldn't fulfill the missions oftentimes that God intended them to. 
or they would miss why they were chosen. And um, Jonah was the same way. He, he wants to see the Ninevites obliterated, and he's more upset that God takes away his little tree at the end of the book than he is about the welfare of these, these people that God wants to save. So, <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, well, it's a testimony of how God can work through even an unwilling member of his plan, you know, and <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you didn't say that into the microphone, just kidding. And then, you know, something like the, the Trinity, I mean, why would they make up the Trinity? It's, it's a really complex, you know, the word itself does not appear in the Bible. You've got a lot of different authors in the Bible um, speaking to the persons of the Trinity, but not necessarily knowing how all the pieces, pieces fit together. You get in the entire, you've got to use the entirety of the New Testament really to understand the Trinity, or at least know exactly what we're believing in. I don't even know if I want to say I understand the Trinity. It's three persons, it's still one God. Um, so there's, there's a lot in the Bible that um, is difficult that they probably would not have, if they were just going to write a fabricated story, would not have written it this way. Okay. And then the fact that the women whose testimonies were not trusted were the first to make it to the, the tomb. Okay. Keep going. Uh, man would not create the tensions of predestination and human responsibility, the trinity, the hypostatic union. There it is. Yeah, I mean... We're still working our way through predestination and human responsibility. And, um, and I'm sure we probably have Calvinists in the room, and we probably have some Arminians in the room. We probably have some folks like, I'm, I'm maybe a Calvinian or our, whatever, an Arminicist. I don't even know how you would say that. So, and then you've got these texts. Uh, many texts contain inherent ambiguity. You know, 1 Corinthians 15, 29, for example. Paul said, otherwise, what do, mean, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised uh, at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? There's been up to 200 explanations given of this verse. And I even did just kind of a cursory look in a few commentaries, and most of them just avoid it because they're not quite sure what to do with it. Um... And then, uh, you know, they, <laughs> they think they know what to do with it. They think they know what to do with it. Uh, the keys to the kingdom of heaven were not exactly, sh you know, the, again, the Catholic Church thinks they know what that means as far as the, the popes were given the keys to the kingdom of heaven, that they were given all this authority. It's tough to know exactly what that means when Christ said this to Peter. And then the seed of the woman, you know, when Moses wrote this, this is called the Proto-Evangelium, the is considered the first mention of the gospel. But they're not going to know that until, you know, over a thousand years later when Christ actually comes. So Moses is writing this, and this was sitting there in the book of Genesis, and people weren't exactly sure they knew what it, they would, didn't know what this meant until it was fulfilled. No, I don't, I don't think he knew what it meant. I don't think he knew. 
So you've got themes that in, there, you've got these themes that are introduced way back in the beginning of the Bible, but they're not like they're not closed up. You know, we don't know what is the conclusion of this until you get to the New Testament and get to Christ. And then Christ is going to say things that we're not completely. I don't think we'll completely know until the world's finally over and we see it all. We see it all come to fruition. We've got a lot of till then. We've got a lot of pan-millennialists. You know what a pan-millennialist is? It'll all pan out in the end. The Gospels present uh, Gregory Boyd. He's known for writing a series of letters to his father to convince him that Christianity was true uh, before um, his father died. This is from a book called Letters from a Skeptic. The Gospels present a consistent portrait of who Jesus is and what he did, as well as the events which surrounded his life. If the four accounts were individually fabricated, where did this consistency come from? But there are also significant differences in each account, showing the relative differences of their perspectives. If they were all fabricated together, the consistency would be greater than we find. So if they were just going to make it up, they would have more overlapping facts and fewer differences that you find in the gospel accounts because we learn their personalities through the gospels and then the second part is so that's honesty okay next is harmony so despite the fact that the scriptures are a collection of multiple compositions written by different authors with different personalities purposes cultural representations writing in different genres on three different continents we've i've read this once before already over a span of 1,500 years, there's a remarkable consistency that evidences one guiding author who superintended the writings. Parallel accounts all contain the same basic story with different details and differing perspectives. This harmony adds to the historical legitimacy of the gospel accounts. So that, so you know, Genesis with again without the revelation of Jesus Christ. Genesis is really hard to understand. Um, you know, that they were, what did it mean that all nations would be blessed by this one guy, Abraham, that was, that was chosen? You know, what did it mean? And then to see Israelite go into exile again and again and again. Uh, what, you know, until Christ came, people didn't fully understand what those covenants made with Abraham were going to mean. That speaks to this harmony. And then the testable, extraordinary claims. There are thousands of historical claims of extraordinary events and miracles, giving extensive details of the events themselves, time, location of occurrence, and the witnessing audience. That's a huge, that's a huge part of this, that it, there were eyewitnesses. With the result that they are testable through the normal historical means of, object, of objectifying the past. When you look at miracles in the Quran, I've, I'm taking this, I've heard this, I've not read it for myself. The miracles are like done in secret. Uh, that there was no one around that saw it. And, and when you do that, well, it's like, okay, you don't have to cover yourself. It's like, well, it happened in secret. There's nothing to prove here. Versus what happens in the Bible. Um, well, not to a, but not, we're talking about the objective evidence, right? We would say there's no truth, but a Muslim would say there was truth in the Quran. Um, but there's nothing objectifiably 
nothing objectively provable. So there was a, has anybody heard of Simon Greenlee? So who was Simon Greenlee? You've heard of I hadn't heard of him. I was, I was reading about him today. Uh, Simon Greenleaf, basically he was the one that made Harvard Law School, Harvard Law School. If you go back to the 1830s, um, he was uh, named to the Royal Professorship in 1846. He became professor, Dean Professor of Law at Harvard University. And the books and the the books he wrote about evidence and how to use evidence in a court case is our, this is still what Harvard uses when they're teaching about how to use evidence in, in the courtroom. And uh, he did not believe in Christ. And uh, one of his students told him one day, yeah, but what do you do with the evidence? And uh, he said, okay. So he started examining the evidence. And he said this. Um, according to the laws of legal evidence used in courts of law, there is more evidence for the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ than for just about any other event in history. The number of eyewitness accounts, the number of um, the fact that you can't find Christ's body anywhere, uh, who moved the stone, all of that, he said, was more evidence that just the evidence you had that would win any case based on how you use legal evidence in courtrooms today. Okay. He did trust the Lord. He became a Christian apologist after that. He wrote a few books. He wrote a few books, I believe. Maybe. Lee Strobel's written, used a lot of his stuff. Okay, well, I'm not sure. Um, next is a lack of motive for fabrication. <coughs> so if the scriptures are fabricated, there's no valid motivation for the writers of scripture to record what they did. The gospel writers, for instance, did not gain anything but persecution for their beliefs. The writing of these beliefs would have brought further rejection with nothing to gain but the fear of death at the hands of their enemies. So... You know, it's like if the, the disciples who were there, who claimed they walked with the resurrected Christ, they were going to be killed for this. Why would they have said it if they had known it to be a lie? You know, it's one thing if I were to say, you know, if, if I die um, for the resurrection of Christ, well, that's a different matter. I, I, I believe it. Okay, but and it's more it's a matter of faith. Whereas for these guys it was not a matter of faith. They saw it firsthand, they knew it, and would they have died for it with what they knew? Does that make sense? You see the difference? They were all martyred, except John, he was exiled to, to Patmos. So if you ever watched the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, that little island at the end where they open up the ark, that was supposed to be Patmos. Yeah, little, you need to watch it again. There's a fifth Indiana Jones movie coming out, by the way. Did you know that? Indiana Jones 5. True, yep, yeah, not a joke. Got to see that one. <laughs> Last one's a little weird. Um, to read the scriptures as fabrications is to let an anti-supernaturalistic bias be your guide rather than the normal means of historical verification. 
In other words, if you, if you just want to make up your mind that there is no God, there's no way, there's no supernatural power, it's like, okay, if you're just going to let that, if, if, if you're going to die on that mountain, it's like, if you're going to have that bias, rather than the normal means of historical verification, it's like, okay. But if you're, if you're willing to believe that there is supernatural power, then all the historical evidence is there. It is historically verifiable. Okay. That was the internal evidence from within the Bible. What about the outside evidence? Evidence from outside. The preservation, the archaeology, the preservation of the fact that the Bible still exists, the archaeology, the extra-biblical attestation, and survival in a hostile audience uh, environment. I'm sorry. So first of all, the preservation. The Bible is the most well-attested book in all of ancient history. And see, this is the interesting part, too. It's like, did you ever just think about the fact that the external writers, I'm getting so excited I'm jumping ahead. The external writers are never the ones on trial. It's like the Bible is what goes on trial. It's proven by these other people outside the Bible writing about it. But why aren't they the ones on trial? You know what I mean? Okay. Um, the Bible is the most well-attested book in all of ancient history, with more extant or existing manuscripts in existence than any other work. The uniqueness of its preservation is inherently tied to its self-authentication as the Word of God. There is no book that has been the object of such scrutiny and passionate attack as a scripture, yet it survives today as the best-selling book of all time, and this alone gives attestation to its authenticity as God's word being protected by his providential hand. So the fact that it exists, that it's still around, is part of its um, evidence as being inspired. But if you don't like that one, we can keep going. Archaeology. The witness of archaeology has continually confirmed the scriptural data when there has been doubt in the past. Um, so a lot of these mentioned, uh, you know, for example, the existence of the Hittites, the date of the census in Luke, the, the reign of Quirinius, governor of Syria, the day of the Gospel of John. Um, later archaeological and historical finds have proved the scriptures to be historically accurate. In other words, some of these things appeared to have issues with them. And later on, archaeologically, they would find out, oh, wait a minute. Uh, that was the right date of the census. Oh, the Hittites did really exist. So the scriptures mention the Hittites without, and for years they, they couldn't find evidence, and they find evidence, oh, the Hittites did exist. Yeah, another, um, King David uh, was not, there was no extra-biblical evidence of the existence of King David until they found an inscription in 1995 and uh, Hebrew, it was Hebrew, it said the, uh, referred to the Bayet David, the house of David. Um, they found in like this ancient relief. So, okay, okay, now that we've found the archaeological evidence, it must be true. Again, what are you going to put on trial? Um, it may be stated categorically, this is from Rivers in the Desert, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted the biblical reference Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail historical statements in the Bible. And by the same token, proper evaluation of biblical descriptions has often led to amazing discoveries. 
the two go hand in hand. Extra biblical attestation. This is an interesting one. If you ever get put on trial, if everybody tries to corner you, you may want to have a few of these at your fingertips. Just want to have them. Over 39 extra-biblical sources attest to more than 100 facts regarding the life and teachings of Jesus. Besides all, besides all the apostolic fathers, whose witness cannot be dismissed simply because they believe that Christ was the Messiah, are the Jewish and Roman historians, many of whom were, could have been hostile towards Christianity and yet attested to these things. Um, I'm not going to go through all of these We'll get to that one. Yeah. That's not this, though. Correct. Um, yeah, so there's a ton. If you go through these right, these are fascinating to read. Uh, so Josephus wrote about the Christians. There was this dude, Pliny the Younger, um, talking about when Christians met. Suetonius, since the Jews constantly made since the Jews constantly made disturbances at, at the instigation of Crestus, he expelled them from Rome. Crestus is considered a Latin spelling of Christ. Um, there's others here. I want to read this one. This one is really interesting. This is uh, actually recorded in something written by a guy named Julius Africanus. But it says, on the whole, listen to this carefully, on the whole world, there pressed a most fearful darkness, and the rocks were rent by an earthquake, and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. This darkness, Thallus, so catch that. This guy, jo Julius Africanus, is writing to a guy named Thallus because Thallus witnessed a great darkening on the day Christ was crucified. And he was trying to attribute it to an eclipse. But this guy... Julius Africanus has said, no, Thallus, let's talk about this. And he goes on to say, um, the rocks were rent by an earthquake. Many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. This darkness, Thallus, in the third book of his history, calls as appears to me without reason an eclipse of the sun. So Julius criticized Thallus for calling this an eclipse. He's saying this was, eclipses don't do this everything that happened on this day. Okay, there's a few others there. Uh, I'm going to keep moving. So let's talk about this case study. Um, well, this, okay, survival in a hostile environment. Since the gospel was spoken and written in close proximity to the events themselves, there would have been many people who could have brought forth evidence that their stories were lies. However, even in the midst of a hostile environment where the opponents had everything to lose, if the gospel story is true, you do not have anyone producing anything that would lead the historian to believe that the story was a fabrication. So, in other words, people were living at that time, and none of them brought forth evidence to say, no, 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 I've got, I've got better evidence as to where Jesus' body was moved to. Nobody came forward with anything like that. Uh, you know, the reason that uh, you know, Oliver Stone made this movie a few years back called JFK, and everybody wanted to flock to see it because there's all these questions around the assassination of JFK. Um, 
And there was, and, and with good reason, it's my understanding that no doctor ever signed off on the autopsy report. Um, and the evidence doesn't seem to line up with the story. There's all kinds of, of things around it. Because the story doesn't seem to jive with the facts. Um, but people are coming up with stuff you know, all these years later and things. But, but it, it was never like a fully attested to deal. There's still questions in people's mind. But at the time of the writing of the Gospels, these kind of issues were not being brought up about whether or not Christ had truly risen from the dead. There wasn't alternative facts that were compelling historians that they needed to rewrite the story. So let's use the resurrection of Christ as a case study. So what is the internal evidence of the resurrection of Christ? Okay, look at it from the perspective of honesty. The disciples who recorded it claimed to have abandoned Christ and did not believe in his resurrection when they were told. Remember, they had to run to the tomb to see for themselves. Even though Jesus told them what was going to happen. They still present themselves as ignorant of God's plan. Also, women are the first to witness the resurrection. So this doesn't go into all the details about the element of honesty, but this is representative of some key issues around the resurrection. Questions? Harmony. The four gospel writers claim to have witnessed the resurrected Christ. The same is the case for the other writers of the New Testament. The four gospel writers all write of the same event from differing perspectives, although they differ in details. They are completely harmonious in the, to the main events surrounding the resurrection and all claim that it is an historical event. So the four gospel writers, they all say it happened, even though they're giving different perspectives on what it exactly looked like. Then the extraordinary claims. The Bible records that the resurrection of Christ happened and gives the time, place, people involved, and it names many of the witnesses. In other words, the extraordinary claims were not done in secret as would be the case if it were fabricated. Lots of people could have said, wait a minute. Don't use my name. I didn't see that, but you don't see that happening. Lots of eyewitnesses. Yes. A perfect example of that is in the book of Acts when, uh, was it Peter, talks to the group of people and he says, hey, we aren't drunk, and they're speaking in tongues. We aren't drunk. It's nine in the morning. And you people have to remember that Jesus Christ is alive and you killed him and this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened. And what happened? A lot of people believed. Because yeah. They were, they were seeing what happened last week or a couple of weeks before that. You got over a thousand, you know, you got hundreds and hundreds of people that are coming to faith right there with everything, with every reason not to do it because of the persecution that was going to come. Remember, the disciples are going to be killed for the claims they were making about Christ. So there was a lack of motive to fabricate the story. There's no reasonable explanation as to why the apostles would have made up such a story. They had no popularity, power, or riches to gain from it if it was a lie. They were in constant persecution because of their confession. And finally, most met a terrible death. I mean, even the guy that survived and was exiled, they tried to kill him by boiling him in oil.
That's right. Who's responsible? You've got Pontius Pilate washing his hands. Yeah. You've got the Jewish leaders appealing to Pilate. Um, yeah. Like, yeah, and I would say that nobody would dispute that there was a historical Jesus who died. The disputation is going to come in as to whether or not he was resurrected. Um, or if he was the Messiah. Yeah, the Jews, they, they all say, okay, he was here, but uh, who was he? Right, Jesus said, um, you know, the, the, the biggest question in the Bible is who do you say that I am? Jesus posed. Um, uh, they were, okay, where am I here? Sealing their testimony in blood. It could not have been an illusion, for illusions do not happen in mass over time. You do, that's important too. If it was some kind of mass illusion, it would like, it stretched on for a while because Jesus hung around a while before he ascended into heaven after he was resurrected. It could not have been a case of mistaken identity. They merely thought they saw Christ, since it is impossible to explain how this many witnesses could be mistaken about seeing someone dead, buried, and then seeing the same person alive three days later. It could not be that Christ did not really die, since the Romans were expert executioners, and many people helped in the burial process, wrapping Christ in burial cloths, as was their custom. So that's the internal evidence for the resurrection of Christ. So what about the external evidence? It just keeps getting better. Um, so the preservation of the story, the manuscript evidence conclusively demonstrates that the gospel accounts were all written within a generation of the events, which they record, authenticating their claims of eyewitness testimony. There is no time for legendary material to arise. And that's a big argument, too, that this was just kind of a legend that later they decided to write down. Because there's, there's other stories similar to Christ, but, but different in the way they were recorded, as far as the eyewitnesses. The, archaeolo the archaeology, Christ's remains were never found, neither could those who denied the resurrection in the first century produce a body, nor those who deny it today. Now, there was a box they found called an ossuary box. It was, called, it was a bone box, that there was a scription on the side that said, here's, jo here's Jesus, son of Mary. But those were very common names at the time. So it still wasn't like, and, and I don't, I'm not sitting here kind of wringing my hands worried that they're going to find a tomb with Jesus' name on it that's going to be inside of it. It's, they didn't produce it back then. The extra-biblical attestation. There are numerous first-century and second-century extra-biblical writings that witness the fact that Christians believe that Christ rose from the, the grave. A lot of these were people that are mentioned earlier. Um, and all this attesting to those that believe that it, that it really happened, who otherwise, um, if it didn't happen, would have known. Then survival in a hostile environment. The opponents of Christianity had every opportunity to expose the fabrication if it were true. The fact that those who were hostile to Christianity did not put forth a, a case against it 
as to its its historicity. I don't know that Josephus ever became a Christian, but he writes about the historical fact of Christ's existence and of the people who believed in him. And the hostile groups did not try to write something to the contrary. Well, it could be. The question was, how do we know that they didn't? They're not just lost. It's possible. We don't know. It's an argument from silence. Um, I'm going to keep moving. If you want to read that, I've uh, got to get to a few more things here. Um, so if, so did Christ rise from the grave? If the answer is no, that means the apostles lied, that they fabricated it. But there's no motivation to lie. They were martyred for an unwavering testimony to having seen Christ alive. It also means the, maybe the apostles were mistaken. You know, they, somebody else, Jesus' twin, somebody else was appearing to them. They claimed to be eyewitnesses of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And they went to their desk for a, a case of mistaken identity. Or Christ's body was stolen. The stolen body theory. Well, who stole it, and why did they steal it? This still would not explain the apostles' testimony of seeing Christ alive. And then the fact that Christ did not die. I had a professor in college who wrote a book about this. He did not believe that Christ died, but went on and had kids. Um, the swoon theory, that Christ only appeared dead. He came to the apostles after three days, beaten, bruised, pierced, stabbed, and convinced them that he was their risen king. So that's really what you're left with. Those are the other possibilities. And this is finally, okay, the prophetic element. The Bible is the only religious or historical book that foretells the future in detail and then asks its readers. So this is what we talked about at the very beginning. The Bible begs, prove me to be wrong. Ask its readers to test the validity of the prophecy to verify its message. So this is God's challenge to you. Go ahead, test it. Test the prophecies to be true. There's several, and that's from Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Remember the former things, long past, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. So God is saying, I am different than all these other gods that are around you. And here's why. Because I'm telling you things that are going to happen before they happen. And you test it to be true. He'll say it again in Isaiah 41. Present your argument, says the Lord. This is a challenge to any other religion. Present your argument, says the Lord. Produce your evidence, says Jacob's king. Let them produce evidence. Let them them tell us what's going to happen. Tell us about your earlier predictive oracles. So we may examine them and see how they were fulfilled or decree for us some future events. Predict how future events will turn out so we might know your gods, that you are gods. Yes, do something good or bad so we might be frightened and in awe. Look, you are nothing and your accomplishments accomplishments are non-existent. The one who chooses to worship you is disgusting. So he's challenging the other religions of the time. Go ahead, do what we've done. And these are, and there's a huge list of prophecies in the Bible. And um, these are are primarily prophecies about Christ and his coming. 
where he'd be born, who he would be born to, um, the flight to Egypt, the entry into Jerusalem on a donkey, uh, you know, betrayed. So there's just a ton of prophecies about Christ coming. That John the Baptist would come. He'd be declared the Son of God. They have mystery in Galilee. Speaking in parables, a prophet. So we'll go through, um, we're going to go through a really good one. This is, they're all really good. We're going to read this one, Isaiah 53. Just listen to this, because it reads as though it was actually written after the time of Christ. 53, 1 through 12. And this was written 700 years before Christ. And by the way, they found this, the book of Isaiah in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were uh, written 150 years before uh, Christ. So who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men. I mean, just listen to this. Yet he was with a rich man in his death. Who was that? Joseph of Arimathea, um, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand as a result of the anguish of his soul. When was the anguish of his soul? Gethsemane. He will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. I mean, this reads like, like Isaiah sat down and wrote it after Christ was crucified for our sins. So... The testimony, that's a prophecy, the testimony of Christ. Since historical evidence conclusively demonstrates that Christ rose from the grave, that resurrection itself verifies his claims to be the Son of God. Since Christ is God's Son, his testimony concerning their inspiration of the Scripture is final and authoritative. Now, this is just saying that the fact of Christ's resurrection, um, I forget who said it, but it's like if you could just prove that Christ is, resurrection, is resurrected, everything else will stand on its own. He validated it through uh, signs and wonders. I'm gonna, so we've touched on 
you know, the life-changing ability of the Bible. Um, Hebrews 4.12 talks about the life-changing nature of the Scripture, the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Um, scriptures testify to themselves to the subjective testimony of God himself in the mind, heart, and soul of an individual, demonstrating that the message proclaimed is truly the voice of God. We've looked at these verses before. That you refuse to believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. That is to say that the people of God recognize the voice of God. And um, I, we need to stop it. If you just look at the difference between the Bible and these other quote-unquote holy books, there's just a chasm of difference between the Book of Mormon, the Quran, and, and the scriptures themselves. So any other comments or questions about, about the Bible? And the, this is the proof of inspiration. Comments? Let me get you a, can I get a, oh, I'm, I'm hooked on the chair. Microphone, please. Is there a microphone? Here we go. Another proof is that people give their lives for it. Yes. And nowadays they will smuggle it into anywhere and give their lives for it. Yeah. You've got that, again, that preservation, the, uh, the willingness to continue to die for the scriptures. Yeah. That's good. They will. Okay, let me say a word of prayer for us. Father, I thank you for, again, your written word. I thank you for its truth. I thank you for the claims that it makes that are verifiable. We thank you for the prophecy fulfilled. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you will bring us to be with yourself. And someday we will have a resurrected body like yours. I thank you for everyone who's here tonight. I pray for those who could not be here, that they would, um, that they are well. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks, everybody. So remember, no, we won't be here next week, and we'll have the last one two weeks, and somehow we'll have to cover sessions eight, nine, and ten. <laughs> in that uh, we won't get through all of it. I'm going to have to pick and choose some things. So.